Well, good morning to you. Thank you so much for your kind invitation to join with you over these four Sundays in Luke's Gospel. I'm very excited to share with you some of the stuff that I've learned. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come into your home, and you'll gather that I'm not standing in the Hamilton pulpit, but here in Kirkentillock, grateful to Alistair Deacon, my friend, who's very kindly made this possible. Please turn with me in Luke's Gospel to chapter 23. We're going to read from verse 26. The heading in my Bible is the crucifixion. So that's Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for this great privilege of being able to access your word. And as we come this morning, we ask that in these unusual circumstances, we might have a lovely sense of being together. But more than that, we might have a lovely sense of being together, gathered around your word. And may we sense your presence, O Lord. And grant, Father, that as you speak to us, that we would be deeply encouraged. We ask these things in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to travel along a road known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the road of sorrows. We know that the Lord Jesus had already suffered greatly in the garden. He thought about all that was in front of him. He thought about the death that he was going to die. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Isn't that extraordinary? As he reflected on the spiritual horror which lay ahead, it almost killed him. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he was arrested and dragged off and he stood trial. And at his trial, he was struck in the face, but it didn't end there. In Mark 14, 65, we read, Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And then Pilate had Jesus scourged with the flagellum, which was the Roman cat of nine tails. 
And as you can see from the illustration, that there are little lumps of lead tied to each of those strands, sometimes little uh, pieces of bone. And as the whip was laid on, uh, on his back, the little pieces of bone and lead may have dug into the flesh, and as the whip was roughly pulled away, it would have pulled with its skin, laying bare sinews and perhaps even exposing some of the bone. The damage would have been severe and significant. The prophet Isaiah, in speaking of Jesus, gives us a dreadful description of him. It says there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And then the Roman soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head. And we read in Mark's gospel, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They struck him on the head again and again with a staff, wanting to cause the thorns to penetrate his brow. How cruel they were. And then they, they spat on him. I don't know if anyone's ever spat upon you. It's a dreadful insult but that's what they did for Jesus. And then the ultimate insult, they fell on their knees and paid homage to him. They mocked him. And then he was taken away to be crucified. And I think he didn't carry the whole cross. I think he carried just the, the beam, the cross beam. And that probably would have weighed around about maybe as much as 100 pounds, and it was placed on his soldiers on his shoulders. And then Jesus stumbled along the route to Golgotha. A soldier likely would have preceded him, carrying a wooden placard with a, a little note on it saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Jesus was led on the longest route possible. So cold fear would grip the populace as a deterrent to crime. Crucifixions were so common that the soldiers probably began the march with a sober, business-as-usual attitude. But there were to be some surprises that day in the light of redemption history that are eternally significant. And it's those surprises that I want to talk to you about this morning. The first surprise involves a man called Simon. Verse 26, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now please understand that Jesus worked as a carpenter, and he was well used to physical labor. He would have been used to heavy lifting. Carrying the cross would have been well within his physical capability in normal circumstances. But he'd been beaten and bruised and finally whipped with a flagellum, back torn, sinews and bones exposed, and he would have been terribly weakened by the beating and the loss of blood. And so the soldiers decided that Jesus probably wouldn't make Golgotha alive. 
that he wasn't able to carry the cross physically to the execution site. So they press-ganged Simon to carry it for him. Simon was from Cyrene in North Africa. Now there's a little verse in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and it says simply, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you may have wondered what that's all about. Well, please understand that Palestine was occupied by the Roman legions, and any Roman soldier had the right in law to press gang a civilian to carry his baggage and his weapons for one mile. Can you imagine the humiliation of that? The Roman oppressors press-ganging the oppressed to carry their weapons, the means by which they oppressed the people. Well, uh, Simon must have wondered, why me? Why have I been chosen to do this? Well, what's very interesting is that these details are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's the Synoptic Gospels. Well, why are they recorded in those three Gospels? Well, I think there's a really important reason. You see, Simon bent under the weight of the cross, following in Christ's footsteps. And that's actually a dramatic picture of what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord made it clear that he would be killed by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. And then he said in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And when his popularity increased, Jesus reiterated that in Verse chapter 14, 25 to 27, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So the bent silhouette of Simon trudging after Jesus is actually a picture of discipleship. And if there's no humiliation, no weight, no sacrifice, then we have to ask the question, are we actually following Jesus? I read in my chosen time this morning in 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know that persecution in our country is minimal in comparison to other countries, and yet when we stand up for Jesus, we can expect to be made the bullseye on other people's dartboards. I don't know if you've heard of a great preacher from yesteryear called Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon ministered in Cambridge in the Holy Trinity Church. And during the first decade of his ministry, his wealthy parishioners were so angry at his ministry that they actually chained their pews, locked them, so that if folks wanted to come to hear Charles Simeon preach, they would have to sit in the aisles. In those days, wealthy, well-off folks 
had their own pews, which were reserved for them. Thankfully, we don't have that. Folks are able to sit wherever they want these days. But Simeon preached, and he not only outlasted them, but he preached there for 50 years. But early on in his ministry, when he was going through a really difficult time, he was really encouraged by this section of Luke's gospel as he felt the weight of his difficult ministry. He's, and I'm going to read to you what he said. One day, he said, when I was an object of much contempt and derision in the university, I strolled forth, buffeted and afflicted, taking my little Greek testament in my hand. I prayed that God would comfort me with some cordial from his word. And opening it, the first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Simon, you know, is the same name as Simeon. It was the very word I needed. What a privilege to have the cross laid on me to bear it with Jesus. It was enough. I could leap and sing for joy. Lay it on me, Lord, I cried. Wow, what a response. Well, all three of the Gospels give us the impression that Simon was both unknown and press-ganged into carrying the cross. And yet we find something surprising and interesting in Mark's account. Look at Mark 15, verse 21. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Well, how do you think Mark knew the name of Simon's sons? Isn't it interesting? Well, many scholars believe that God worked in Simon's heart, so he becomes a follower of Jesus. And Mark assumes that his Roman readers would know them. Christian called Rufus was greeted by Paul at the end of his epistle to the Romans in verse 13 of chapter 16. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, we don't know if this is the same Rufus. We're not sure, but it is possible. But what we see is an amazing surprise of grace, and it touches Simon's life, and his life has changed. And it's not too much of a stretch to believe that the life of his lives of his sons was changed as well. So that's the first surprise we come across on this Via Dolorosa. And then there, the second surprise is the surprised mourners. It says in verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So in the crowd was a group of women who openly wept and wailed. As they sympathized, they felt the pain of Jesus and possibly contemplated the dreadful spiritual condition of their nation. After all, here was someone who had only done good and yet was being persecuted for it. It has been pointed out that as far as the gospel records are concerned, we have no record of any woman ever being an enemy of Jesus. And nor was Jesus ever an enemy 
of womankind. His example, his teachings, and most of all, his redemption have done much to dignify and elevate women. The news of his birth was shared first with who? With Mary, a Jewish girl. His death was witnessed by grieving women, and the good news of his resurrection was announced first to a woman who'd been demon-possessed. Now, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that women tend to be a little bit more spiritually sensitive than us men. Jesus appreciated their sympathy and used it to teach them and us a really important lesson. While they were weeping over the injustice of one man's death, he was looking ahead and grieving over the terrible destruction of the entire nation, a judgment that was wholly justified. Imagine their surprise when Jesus said in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. This bruised and dreadfully battered man on the verge of a truly awful death in those moments was actually thinking not of himself, but of them. And here we see just extraordinary grace. He says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then came the frightening prophecy, 29 to 30. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. You see, a judgment was coming, and it was going to be so terrible that barrenness, which was normally viewed as most unfortunate, would in that time be considered to be a tremendous blessing. And imagine being in the midst of difficulties that were so awful that you would call out for an earthquake to cause the mountains to collapse and kill. So what was the message? The fact that Jesus warned these devout women indicated that not all who would experience the coming disaster deserved it. For not all of Israel were hostile to Christ. Thus, Jesus left open the possibility that God, who was working in Simon's heart, could work in the hearts of those who were devastated by what was happening to Jesus. And interestingly enough, the Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But amazingly, the persecution of the Christians had driven many of the Christians out of Jerusalem before it was destroyed. How extraordinary is that? But all of this reminds us that there is a judgment coming. We don't know when. Each one of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. And some wise person has said, that we are only ever one heartbeat away from eternity. And if there is one thing that this virus is teaching us, it's teaching us about our own mortality and how we ought not to take things for granted.
So Simon was surprised. The mourners were surprised. And that brings us to the third surprise, surprise at the cross. It says in verse 13, 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. At Golgotha, Simon was allowed to lay down the cross. And with brutal efficiency, Jesus was thrown down and the spikes were driven through his hands and feet. The crossbar was raised by the four soldiers with Jesus dangling it, Jesus dangling from it, and it was fastened to that single standing upright post. And Jesus' feet were nailed probably with a single spike to the post. Jesus began his agonized prayers as he struggled upward for breath and then slumped downward again in exhaustion. Two criminals, possibly members of Barabbas's band, were crucified on Jesus' right and left. The message was intentional. Jesus was a criminal amongst criminals. The prophecy which Jesus made in the upper room was being fulfilled. Look at verse 37 of 22. It's written that he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, we cannot understand the physical pain that Jesus endured. And it's very interesting. The Bible actually doesn't give us much detail about the crucifixion. It doesn't tell us that the soldiers had to throw Jesus down to the ground. It doesn't tell us whether they had to pry his fingers open or not. I don't believe they did because I don't think he held on to anything. Matthew's gospel says simply when they had crucified him. You see, I think if we were given a great deal of detail, we would focus on that detail. But the pain, the physical pain that he endured, pales almost into insignificance when placed alongside the spiritual torture that he endured in those moments. When he who knew no sin had the sin of the world poured down upon him. And that was so awful that one of the things he cried out was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in a way that we can't understand, God the Father moves away from God the Son. God the Father couldn't be present when God the Son died. But the surprise comes just early on in that account when the soldiers were hammering the spikes through his hands and feet Jesus prayed Father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing now please understand that this was for the soldiers and only for this act of brutality it wasn't for all the sin they, have, they had committed it was just for that act of uh, brutality. And what an extraordinary, astonishing act of grace this was. That when they were inflicting such pain upon him, that instead of thinking of his own pain and focusing on it, he focused on his tormentors. And he said, Father, forgive them, 
for they don't know what they're doing. What an extraordinary act of astounding grace. I wonder, was it this that impacted the centurion? Who, when it was all over, said in verses 46, 47, when Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. What an amazing passage this is. Here we see three surprises. The surprise of, surprise of Simon being impacted by following Christ and his family being impacted too. The surprised mourners experience, experiencing grace from Jesus and then the surprise at the cross. But you know, there is one final surprise and it's this. He can and will reach out to us with his salvation just as we reach out to him. Is that not extraordinary? I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror and think about my own life, I wonder, how could it be, Lord, that, that you would ever love somebody like me? And yet God looks down at this whole world and he loves, he loves us. Each one loves us. He loves you as you sit at home and think about these things. But let me ask you, you may have heard this message many times, but have you ever personally made a response to it? Have you ever reached out to him? Because if you do, He will surprise you with his grace by reaching out to you with the gift of his salvation. It is the most wonderful thing to be brought into the family of God. And as we think about what lies beyond this scene of time, we know the scripture says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the, the, the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But I feel very sure that if we know him and love him and trust him, we shall live in eternal amazement, perpetual joyous surprise as we learn more and more about his loveliness and are captivated and enthralled by his beauty. I wonder, as we approach Easter Sunday, Good Friday, thinking about the crucifixion, I wonder what surprises he might have in store for you if you reach out to him wherever you are in your journey through this world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture. And we thank you that it's so evident that Jesus wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on others, those around about. And even today, O oh Lord, your focus is not on yourself, but on those that you care for and love. And it may very well be that there's somebody listening to this 
and they don't feel particularly loved. But we want to ask, O Lord, that in your own gentle and beautiful way, that you would draw alongside every heart and bowed in your presence and remind us that the psalmist says he has delivered us because he has delighted in us. And if there is someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, oh Lord, would you just give them grace just now to reach out to you and you reach out to them, Lord. Give them your salvation. Surprise them with grace. We ask these things, Father, as we commit one another to you, conscious that there are some folks today who will be a little frightened, perhaps for the future, perhaps for health issues, perhaps for finances. But you know all of these things. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to trust you for the whole of eternity. Because if you can't look after us in the here and now, we may very well be in trouble in eternity. But we know that won't happen. So thank you, Father. Lock these truths in our heart. Bless us and make us a blessing to others that we might bring a smile of joy to your face. We ask these things, Father, in the precious and the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.